0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we begin our 28th podcast in our series on the second half of world history. In the 27th podcast, we looked at the Pacific theater of World War II after wrapping up the podcast before with the Allies eventually aiding the countries, invading eventually the countries of Italy and then Germany, and that concluded with VE Day, Victory Over Europe Day, on May 8th, 1945. But the war was far from over. On the other half of the world, in the Pacific Theater, the Allies would now have to begin an island hopping campaign, or it had already started, but continue and bring to conclusion the island hopping campaign to advance eventually to the Japanese home islands. But in the Pacific Theater, the Allies were astounded at how different the Japanese fought. And that is, again, was the main part that I wanted to emphasize with that, especially with the invasion of Iwo Jima. So here we go, and we ended on that uh, podcast by looking at the beginning of the uh, top secret weapons development program called the American Manhattan Project. Back, of course, in the United States, under the leadership of the, from the military, Leslie R. Groves, and on the scientific side, that of Dr. J. Robert o- Robert Oppenheimer. So today we're going to m- advance the Pacific Theater in World War II and bring the Second World War to a close. Well, throughout the beginning of the summer of 1945, the Allies were under the grim reality that an invasion of the Japanese home islands themselves was going to be required. The targeted date for Operation Olympic was to be November 1st of 1945. However, On the morning of July 16, 1945, that reality suddenly was put into question with the successful bomb explosion of the world's first atomic device at 29 seconds into the 29th minute of 5 a.m. on July 16, 1945, in a place known as Alamogordo, New Mexico. The United States scientists and military successfully created an uncontrollable chain reaction of splitting the heaviest known atom on Earth, that being uranium, but not just any uranium atom, specifically the isotope uranium-235. With the amount of weight that could literally be in size of the actual bomb itself, the amount of uranium used could easily fit into one human hand. The idea that putting neutrons into uranium atoms and splitting it truly caused that uncontrollable chain reaction that, as many people described it, was the first time on the planet that it really looked like the Earth was experiencing the second sunrise in any given day. As some said, it was the it was the day that the sun rose twice. So while the uranium split proved to be successful, could it actually be put into a bomb itself, much less put onto a plane, and then brought thousands of miles away to drop somewhere over the Japanese islands? Throughout the remainder of the month of July, President Harry Truman, again, who had succeeded President Franklin Roosevelt, who died in the prior April, April 12th, 1945, had leaflets drawn up in the English language as well as in Japanese. And dropping these leaflets from, from planes, American planes, as we now owned the skies over the Japanese islands, for every attempt that a Japanese, the Japanese Air Force attempted to launch a plane, we would immediately shoot it down we owned the skies. Therefore, we could drop these pamphlets warning the Japanese of utter destruction of their homeland if they did not indeed surrender immediately. But of course, no surrender ever came. So President Truman made the agonizingly difficult decision to go ahead with the first atomic bomb drop scheduled for the early hours of August 6th, 1945. While the action of putting the, those orders onto paper seemed relatively easy. Getting that 7,000-pound overweight B-29 off of the runway of Tinian Island would prove to be far more difficult. The concerns was that the runway wasn't long enough for the overweight B-29 to eventually get its wheels off the ground. As a result, they did four practice runs by purposely overloading the plane and attempting to get the B-29 off of the runway. All four practice attempts ended up in catastrophe with the four planes over the edge of the cliff of the island smoldering in the Pacific Ocean. But the orders from President Truman came. There would be more, no more time for practicing. The heroic Air Force Colonel by the name of Paul Tibbets, a native of Columbus, Ohio, was chosen to select a carefully disciplined team to get that bomb, little boy, the uranium fission atom into the belly of the B-29 that he named after his mother, the Enola Gay, and get that overweight bomber off the ground at 2.30 in the morning. Witnesses crowded around on both sides of the runway. As the B-29, all the engines were put into full force, full throttle, and that lumbering B-29 worked its way down the runway, everybody recognizing that the plane did not seem to be going fast enough to get its wheels off of the runway before it would crash and add to the carnage and the wreckage on the, that, that was already at the end of the runway. What's worse is that this plane would actually actually have the atomic bomb on board. However, by the time the back wheels were running off of the runway itself, that bird became airborne. Witnesses say that they saw the plane sink so low off the edge of the island that they were afraid it was going to hit the water, as the other planes did. But miraculously, the plane was airborne, and it's on its mission to one of four cities that it would target later on that day. Some, however, have wondered, what did Colonel Tibbetts do to suddenly make that plane different from the other four planes? In fact, the sigh of relief and jubilation on board the Enola Gay was addicting, as the way the pilots congratulated one another. Until they all looked at Colonel Tibbetts, who of course was still flying the plane, and said, Colonel, how'd you pull that off? What, it, what it was different about our plane versus those four practice planes? And C- Colonel Tibbets didn't answer. Eventually, everybody stopped cheering and looked at the colonel, and with dead seriousness asked, Colonel Tibbetts, how did you get this plane off the ground? And he merely motioned with his thumb over his right shoulder. As everybody turned back around and walked to the end of the plane, and in horror, they realized that Colonel Tibbetts had jettisoned their second massive gas tank or fuel tank. There would not be enough gas to be able to get to Japan and back if there was any kind of interference, headwind, or unpredictable weather. In horror, they all realized that this is liable to be a suicide mission, but the orders from the president were clear. Drop that bomb, and that was the only thing that Tibbetts and his brave men we're thinking about from that point forward. So with that, the first atomic bomb was dropped at a little over 8 a.m. in the city of Hiroshima because it had the least amount of cloud cover. Of the four cities that were targeted, every one of them produced a strong military presence and its factories contributed to the Japanese war effort. Yes, civilians were gonna be wrapped up into this. There was no way around it. And the bomb was dropped. In the first millisecond of that explosion, that bomb was hotter, and its flames was hotter than the surface of the sun. Instantly, lives, objects, everything within a small radius was vaporized. Miles out, people would be suffering from the bomb immediately, as well as radiation poisoning that would affect them later on. This was truly a weapon that had multiple layers of destruction in fact to give an idea just how different this bomb was than others that had ever been used in human history there was a young man pedaling on his bike into the city when the bomb blew him off the bike but he was far enough away to not have any serious immediate injury to his body so he jumped back onto the bike and started continuing to pedal towards the city, towards Hiroshima itself, as the fireball continued to rise up further and further. As he was pedaling down, he was driving, riding along a river, but he didn't look at the river as he was too focused on the city itself when he heard a screaming for help. He immediately stopped, got off his bike, and ran down to the edge of the river and was horrified by what he saw. For his entire life, that river had beautiful blue flowing water coming through it. But not only was the water not blue, the water was nowhere to be found. It was vaporized. And a woman who had been blown off of the road as she was walking on, into the riverbed itself, her right hand was stuck into the muck. She was asking for help to pull her out, and the Japanese young man immediately obliged and ran down to help her, and he put both of his hands on her on her left forearm and pulled her up however as he attempted to, struggling to pull her out he immediately fell backwards with this rancid awful smelling oil that was stinging his eyes and was on his nose and his mouth the taste was putrid In his hands, because his eyes were closed in his hands, he felt the glove from from what the woman was wearing. And yet as he cleared the oil and debris from his eyes, he didn't remember the woman wearing a pair of gloves. Finally, he wiped the oil from his eyes, and he stood up, and he looked down, and in his hands, he was horrified to find out. No, the woman was not wearing a glove. Rather, all six layers of her skin had been pulled off the muscle mass and bone as though literally it were she were wearing a dinner glove before he could even respond to the woman to ask if she was all right and I'm sorry for what I did she was perfectly still she was dead the response from the Japanese was we are not sure if the bomb that was dropped was atomic or not so we will continue to fight for that reason on August 9, 1945 Boxcar, the second American Air Force B-29, took off from Tinian Island to drop, Little, to drop Fat Man. Fat Man, unlike Little Boy, didn't use uranium to split. Rather, it used plutonium, and the reason why it was 5,000 kilotons stronger than the Hiroshima bomb was. Finally, seeing no end in sight, Japan officially surrendered on the USS Missouri to five-star General Douglas MacArthur on September 2nd, 1945. Over 1,400 days since its bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japan was surrendering to the United States. So that brings us to an end of the actual coverage of the Second World War. As we end now, I'd like to focus on two things. Number one would be the reasons for the Allied victory, which is extremely important. And the second, and the other reason too, is because those lessons will be with us now moving forward as we cover our chronology of the second half of world history. And the second, of course, will be the elephant in the living room that I haven't talked about yet. And that, of course, was genocide. So in terms of the reasons for the Allied victory, Unlike World War 1 sheer numbers of troops did not determine success at the conclusion of this war and forevermore sheer numbers of troops would no longer be necessary if countries were willing to use the most catastrophic weapons ever devised by the human body that said sheer numbers were making a difference throughout the campaigns in the European theater and almost the entire Pacific theater, but the atomic bombs changed that equation. Never before in human history had nine pilots with one plane dropping one bomb decimated 70,000 lives instantly over Hiroshima, 80,000 in Nagasaki, not including the thousands of lives that would be lost later that day and in the weeks and months to come due to radiation sickness and poisoning. So for that reason, the world, while we celebrated joyously after the First World War, the Second World War was a lot more tepid in our jubilation because the world was in shock at just what this second massive world conflict produced as we now were entered into the nuclear age. And once that nuclear genie came out of the bottle, she wasn't about to go back in. So for starters, again, the reasons for Allied victories was the soldiers on the American side alone. While there was less than 200,000 soldiers enlisted on April and December 7th, 1941, over 16 million would participate in the war effort just four years later. From there, we also saw uh, America's economic capacity To put this into perspective in terms of how expensive this war was for the United States, President Franklin Roosevelt in three years wrote $300 billion in checks and money transfers to conduct the war. To put that into perspective, $300 billion, that would be more than the presidential budgets going back from George Washington to Franklin Roosevelt's immediate predecessor, Herbert Hoover, number 31. Franklin Roosevelt spent more money than the first 31 presidents did combined and doubled. Again, for perspective, the American Revolution was $57 million. The American Civil War was $600 million. This war was $300 billion. The technology also played a huge role with the advance of radar and sonar. And let's face it, science also played an instrumental role with the development of the nuclear weapon. The reason being is because unlike every other weapon devised before, the shock or the impact of the ammunition is what caused the damage. So once a hand grenade blew up, once a machine gun unloaded its ammunition, you could immediately stand up and run to your next target or run with your next destination. But... The nuclear bombs was something entirely different, because you had five stages of der- of destruction, with a nu- thermonuclear bla- a nuclear, and then eventually a thermonuclear blast. Quick distinction: nuclear is what we dropped over Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. That's splitting the atom, bringing two hydrogen atoms together. That's a fusion bomb, and fusion bombs, as we'll see, make what we dropped over Hiroshima, and Nagasaki looked like we threw a firecracker out of the plane window in comparison. But the five stages of destruction were by and large parallel between your nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. You had, of course, the initial shock blast, but then again, unlike every other weapon ever devised by human beings, you then had stage two, which was the thermal flash. You then had stage three, the direct radiation, Stage four was the fallout in the air and in the water that contaminated everything that it landed on. And finally, a fifth stage, ironically enough, or strangely enough, wasn't actually discovered until 1961, was the EMP, the electromagnetic pulse. Those are the five stages of destruction which makes these weapons truly the weapon that the human race could extinguish all life on Earth if we made enough of these horrific weapons and detonated them so that again is part, is the just a quick summary of the reasons for the allied victory now in terms of genocide going on not only of course in hitler's germany as well as in german occupied territory but we're going to see genocide continue in the extended lifespan unfortunately of the soviet union Mao Zedong, with his quote-unquote great leap forward, which was by and large nothing more than a great leap in the grave for a massive number of people. Millions and millions of people, however, will be killed, many of them simply because of their race or ethnicity and religion. The six million Jews that would be murdered at the hands of Adolf Hitler, ironically, was only 20% of his goal, as horrific as that was. There was also the stages of extinguishing these lives between in the distinction between the ghettos, the concentration camps, and then the extermination camps. The ghettos are where the Jews and individuals with disabilities, both physical and mental disabilities would be rounded up, where eventually then they would be split up to the concentration camps, which is where the work they would be worked to death or human inhumane experiments taken on them until they died in place, or they would be sent to the extermination camps, which of course was to go there for only for the sole purposes of to die. I have only seen one actual concentration camp that I've not only seen from the outside, but I went in and toured the camp, and that was in Dachau, Germany. It is a site that I refuse to ever go back to. The concentration camps, despite the number throughout Europe, Regardless of how many times I've been back there and will get back there, I cannot bring myself to walk back into another one. It is truly one of those situations, one of those scenes, that you just cannot get out of your head. And the last thing that I want to do is add to that, despite what I know, again, from my study of history. Of the six million Jews, studies and studies have been done of them, and rightly so. But what I'd like to focus on briefly is a a study that wasn't done until decades later, and it was important, and that is to focus on the, the actual Holocaust survivors. I'm not talking about the people that were sent into the camps and then liberated by the Allies a couple of days later. Wonderful, if that's how they survived, of course. But I am talking about individuals that survived in concentration camps for years when the life expectancy was months. Or in the extermination camps where the life expectancy was hours and they lasted days or longer. What about these people got them through that to actually be liberated years later? And the extensive studies that were done boiled it down to three common denominators or three common traits of Holocaust survivors. One was an unfailing drive to live despite the horror. Two, was an absolute reality of the horror. They had no inclination to try to think otherwise. They knew that they were here to be worked to death, tortured to death, and to be put to death. Yet, they wanted to wake up the next day. The third was rapid decision-making capability, and of course, no second-guessing. The stories that these survivors tell are enough to make anybody's skin crawl of what they needed to do with split-second decision-making time in order to try to be able to survive for another minute, another hour, or another day. It is the individual, the young man, a young teenager, who saw his father trying to force bread onto his brother's plate. The brother was too sick to eat it, but the dad insisted if he only had some more bread, he might survive. But because these two were in a sense fighting, the SS guards looked over, and the older son took the bread and shoved it in his mouth, his father angry beyond words that he would steal his brother's nutrition, when in fact that son saved his father's life and his younger brother's. I should rephrase that, not saved it, but sadly only extended it, as they would eventually be killed anyhow, but that, middle, that older child would walk out of the camp countless stories of heroic heroic bravery can be found in multiple books throughout the world ever since the first concentration camps were liberated by the allies on april 12 1945 but please remember and it's not to take away from hitler's numbers at all but stalin alone will commit 8 million Ukrainians to their death with a swipe of his hand when he demands that their grain shipments be cut off until further notice. Mao would put millions into starvation as he tried his bold attempt at establishing communism on a population where it just didn't work. Which then leads us to one of our final questions about the war, and that is why genocide? Again, a term that we actually don't coin until 1955, a full 10 years after the first camps are discovered. But number one was social engineering was one reason. And second reason was nationalism to the point that I would ask you either uh, pausing the podcast now or after you're done as we only have a few more minutes. But to do a search and just type this in the search engine, Buck versus Bell, B U C K. Versus Bell, B-E-L-L. Look up that Supreme Court case, that infamous Supreme Court case of 1929, and you tell me that Hitler was actually trying something new that the Americans were actually horrified at. Because, in fact, when it came to social engineering, we were trying to do the exact same damn thing by trying to get the unfit to perish from our country. To the point that a Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, wrote of the woman who was suing because she was sterilized, because she was considered unfit, that the Supreme Court Justice sided with the state in doing the right thing because, Mrs. Buck, three generations of idiots is enough. I kid you not, those words are in his Supreme Court ruling. Okay, he didn't use the term idiots. He used the term imbeciles. So again, while Hitler clearly will bring this to dramatic, dangerously catastrophic and deadly heights, the idea was not foreign to the United States about social engineering. In terms of being able to kill so many people so quickly, sadly, the advance of science with Zyklon B was also making advances with that, as well as the technology. A third reason was propaganda through the media. And fourth, And the one that I try to stress to my students the most because it is so important is that Adolf Hitler gradually eliminated the freedom of millions of Germans within his country. Please note that if nothing more than you get, not only from this podcast, but every podcast you may have listened to of mine up to this point. The people that cause the most horrific tragedies in world history are generally not people that race their way to power by blazing and killing everybody in their path. Rather, they take unbelievably small baby steps, monitor everybody's reaction, let this infringement on people's rights eventually become the norm, and then step it up once again, and then again, and then again, until finally the world realizes, wait a minute, you've gone too far. Yes, and now we have to pay the price of trying to eliminate that world leader from doing any further destruction. So that brings us to the end of World War II, when obviously The relations between the United States and Great Britain versus the USSR was going to be no love lost. Because how ironic that Hitler's top priority in his foreign policy to eliminate the Soviet Union and defeat communism will now become the central foreign policy mantle of the United States and Great Britain. Again, ironically enough. But Hitler's foreign policy becomes America's foreign policy after 1945. Except in our case, we want to draw a massive line around the country that spans over 10 time zones, hold it in, and hope that it self-destructs. To do that is going to cost us hundreds of thousands of more lives of our own soldiers, millions more worldwide, It's going to cost trillions of dollars and it's going to take decades to actually come to fruition. So because of this, the United Nations was formed at the Yalta Conference where there the people would hope to be able to forge out a future template to avoid human conflict going forward. And I don't need to insult my listeners to know what the report card on that was. But please know, that in the next podcast, as we march on now, in time after 1945, please know that we will see more changes after 1945 than we have in the prior 400 years combined. And if you think we're done with the killing, know that in just one small country in Southeast Asia, the United States alone will drop 70,000 pounds of bombs every eight minutes for nine straight years, all in the name of the Cold War. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me through my website, ceconcella.com. Otherwise, have a great day, and we'll see you with the 29th podcast next week.